Right now, please turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13. This morning I'm going to start with an unpleasant truth and then we're going to move to a pleasant truth and an encouraging truth. The unpleasant truth is this, prior to believing in Jesus Christ, Colossians 1.21 says a person is alienated and quote hostile in mind doing evil deeds against God. In other words, prior to belief in Jesus Christ, the Bible makes clear that a person is an enemy of God. That they are hostile, that they are a hostile soldier warring alongside Satan against God. That with every sin that they are launching a missile of rebellion against God. And what does this do? This reasonably fills God with righteous indignation. God hates the enemy soldier who sins against him, and he hates the sin they commit. The saying that has gained so much ground, God loves the sinner but hates the sin, is unbiblical. It is misleading. The hard and unpleasant truth is that God hates the sinful person that wars against him and he hates the sin that they commit. This is clear in Scripture. Psalms 5, verses 4 and 5 say, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. You, the boastful shall not stand before you. Your eyes, you hate all evildoers. Psalm 11, verse 5 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and the one who sows discord among his brothers. Notice, notice in that passage in Proverbs that, not, that hatred that God has is not only inclusive of the sin, but it's inclusive of the person sinning. God hates the one 
who breathes out lies. God hates the one who sows discord among his brothers. This is why I say God hates the sinner who wars alongside Satan against him, and he hates the sin. This is why there's a hell. It's interesting, nowhere in your Bible does it ever say God sends sin to hell. It only says that he says that he sends sinners to hell. It's because God hates the sinner, and it's because God hates the sin that they commit. Now listen very closely. Yes, God hates the sinner, and yes, God hates the sin they commit, and, praise God, there's an and, and, At the very same time as God hates the sinner and hates the sin, and at the very same time, he offers loving redemption to all of his enemies. God hates the sinner, he hates the sin, And at the very same time, God the Father sends God the Son, Jesus Christ, to the cross to bear what? To bear all of the just, hate-filled wrath that every single sinner deserves. On the cross, Jesus paid for that hell. Even on the cross, Jesus paid for all that hate-filled justice that every single person deserves. And when a person trusts in Jesus Christ, what happens? As Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, they are at peace with God. They are made right with God. They are forgiven of all their sin. They are cleansed. And not only that, but they change armies. When a person trusts in Jesus Christ, they change They were an enemy of God, warring alongside Satan against God. But when God gets a hold of a person and they believe in Jesus Christ, they change. God takes them on the battlefield of life and changes their direction. He makes them a soldier for Christ. And he gives them the honor. He gives them the privilege of warring with the Holy Spirit against sin and warring against Satan. God, in his amazing grace, offers salvation to enemy soldiers. Then he turns them around and he gives them the honor and the ability to do what they could not do before to war against sin to war against Satan and win, win, win. Amen? Amen. This is why Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 12, I have fought the good fight of faith. Prior to Christ, what was Paul doing? He was warring against God. He was warring, persecuting Christ warring against the church but once God got a hold of them God not only forgave and cleansed them but God turned them around right on the battlefield of life and he began to war he began to war for God against sin and against Satan this is why 
Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, wage good warfare. Because the Christian is not only saved by Christ, they're commissioned by Christ to fight, fight, and fight. To fight for his glory. This is why you turn to Ephesians chapter 6 and what do you see? You see the call to put on the armor of God. What is that? That's a call to war. Christians are called to fight. And they're empowered by the Spirit to fight against the sin they couldn't before, to fight against the Satan they couldn't before. Think of it this way. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 5, it tells all Christians, put to death. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. What is that? That's a call to war. That's a call to take sin, the sin in our life, and the Satan oppressing us, to take them by the head and blow their head off. That's a call to war. What did Jesus say? In Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 through 31, if your right eye causes you to sin, caress it kindly. No, tear it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, if you love God and you're on my side, you're going to sever sin. You're going to fight sin. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to win over sin. You are a soldier for Christ, and it's time to fight. In 1 Peter 5, 8, we are told by God, through Peter, that there's a devil walking around, prowling around, roaring like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. And what is the Christian response to that? It's in the next verse, which is resist him, steadfast in your faith. Other translations say, hold your ground. What is that? That's war language. That's Peter saying via the Holy Spirit, you are a soldier of Christ. You were a soldier against Christ. Now you're a soldier for Christ. And your commission is to fight against sin. Your commission is to fight against Satan for the glory of God. Prior to a person trusted in Jesus Christ, they, sold, they are a soldier who fights alongside Satan against God. Af, after they become a Christian, a person is saved and they are commissioned by God. They become a soldier of Christ. And they are called to fight, fight, and fight. And as you all know, as you all know, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that fight in no way is easy. It is extremely hard. It's something we struggle to do as believers every single day. You and I are saved by Christ. Praise God. And you and I are commissioned by Christ to be his soldiers warring against sin and Satan. Praise God. That is an honor, but it's not easy. It is so hard. And every day we struggle not to give ground to sin and not to give ground to Satan in our life. And it can be just so discouraging 
so defeating and deflating. But today I'm so happy to be in Nehemiah chapter 13. Why? Because we're going to see Nehemiah go to war. A person like you and me, filled with the Spirit, called by God, a person like you and me go to war against sin and Satan. And God is going to give him victory, victory, victory. That is so encouraging. It reminds us that we as soldiers of Christ, yes, the battle is hard, but the end result as we depend on Christ is victory, victory, victory. If you haven't already, turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. In Nehemiah chapter 13, we're going to look at two, two of five wars. We're going to cover Nehemiah chapter 13 over the course of two weeks. We're going to cover two today, two of the five wars he fights against sin and Satan. And we're going to see two of the five ways that God brings victory. Let's start with the first. First, we're going to see the war of the assembly. The war of the assembly. Look at verse 1, verses 1 through 3. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter through the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. Verse 3, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Notice two details in those verses. First, notice the timing The timing, the first three words read, on that day. And that begs the question, what day is it? Is this the same day as the dedication of the temple in chapter 12? Or is this some other day? What time period is this? What day is this? We find out actually in verse 6. Go down to verse 6. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. That phrase, while this was taking place, is actually referring to the events of verses 5 and 6. I was not, or excuse me, verses 4 and 5. I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. Let's stop right there. Last week, in Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12, what did we see? We saw the people of God put God over everything. At the beginning of chapter 11, they put God over their homes. They cast lots to see who would have to move into the city. And those chosen willingly went, uprooted their whole house and moved into the city, put God above their homes. In chapter 12, midway through, we saw how the Israelites put God above their accomplishments how they built the wall, they came to dedicate the wall, and in no way, shape, or form did anyone say, look at me, look at me, look at me. No, everyone said, look at God, look at God, look at God. They gave God all the glory. They put God over their homes, they put God over their accomplishments, and then we saw at the end of chapter 12, they put God over their finances. They gave and gave and gave to the work that God was doing. So in chapters 11 and 12, we see the people of God with Nehemiah. It's important. Nehemiah is with them through all of that. Nehemiah is with them, and they're putting God over everything. 
But then as verse 6 says, Nehemiah leaves. He goes back to Babylon for a short time. And then he, makes, then he makes his way back to Jerusalem, back to the people of Israel. And verses 1 through 3 are actually day 2 of his visit. Day 2 of his visit. We'll get to the first day in verses 4, 5, 6, all the way through 9. But verses 1, and three, 1 through 3 are day 2 of Nehemiah's visit back or coming back to Jerusalem. So that's the timing. That's what's happening here. Now let's look at the sin that Nehemiah found when he came back. Like Moses left the Israelites to go up Mount Sinai, and while he was up there, what did the Israelites do? They started worshiping a golden calf, right? Nehemiah, he goes to Babylon, and as he's gone, these people open the doors to the Ammonites and the Moabites. Why is that a bad thing? Why is that so horrible? Well, first of all, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 4, God said, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Now listen very carefully. That is to the exclusion of the Ammonite or Moabite, like Ruth, who was a Moabitess. That is to the exclusion of the Ammonite or the Moabite who repented of their sin, became a believer in the God of the Bible, and joined the people of God. With that exclusion, everyone else of the Ammonites and the Moabites, the command was crystal clear. They're not allowed but as we all know as we all know even when a command of God is absolutely crystal clear it is hard it is difficult it can be extremely difficult to war against sin and keep that command we all know this Jesus gave a lot of crystal clear commands, did he not? Jesus said, he gave the crystal clear command that no unwholesome word was to ever proceed out of our mouth. Crystal clear. But wow, do we struggle in the war against that sin. Amen? Amen. Jesus gave the crystal clear, crystal clear command that unforgiveness is a sin. Yet, wow, do I, do we struggle in the war against that sin? Jesus gave the crystal clear command concerning sexual purity. One man, one woman, married, is the only place for sexual intimacy, physical or thought, but wow, do we struggle to war against that sin? These people are no different from us. They have a crystal clear command from God and they fail to keep it. They lose ground in the war against sin and Satan. So the day after Nehemiah returns, what does he do? He takes the sword of the Spirit and he begins to hack away 
go to war against sin. Look at the verses. He assembles the people, and what do they do? They read the Word of God. What is the Word of God? Ephesians chapter 6 tells us it is the sword of the Spirit. It is the weapon God gave us to war against sin and Satan. He takes out that sword and he begins to hack away. And what does God do? He gives the victory. Amen? Amen. Look at verse 3. As soon as the people heard the law, the Word of God, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. That is beautiful victory. Amen? That is awesome. Side note. Some may look at this and be wondering, is that racism? No. Not in the slightest. The Ammonites and the Moabites absolutely, categorically hated God. Hated God. And not only did they oppose the Israelites in the wilderness, like this says, they also tried to draw the Israelites away from God and draw them into sin. Not only did Balaam, as your text says, make prophecies against them, but Balaam also advised the Ammonites and the Moabites to do what? To infiltrate, to infiltrate the assembly of God for the purpose of not hearing the truth, of not changing, but for changing the Israelites, drawing them into sin. This separation is in no way racism. This is absolutely the people of God refusing to be sinfully influenced by a people hostile to God as God commanded them. In other words, this is the Israelites being in the world, but in no way of the world. Just like the Christian community is called by Jesus today. They're in the world, and in this way, shape, or form, God is saying, don't be of the world, and they are following this command. And before we move on to the next section, I want to stop here and point out two applications we can pull from this text. The first applications we can pull from verses 1 and 3 is pick up the sword of the Spirit. Pick up the sword of the Spirit. The Spirit, like all believers today, these people were in war against sin and Satan. And the war was not going well. They were living in direct violation of God's command. Sin and Satan had gained a foothold in their life. And that is miserable. That is horrible. And here... Under Nehemiah's leadership, what do they do? They pick up the sword of the Spirit. They pick up the Word of God, and they read it. And the Word of God, like it says, does not return void. The status of the war does a 180 concerning this sin. The Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, enables them to see their sin God uses the word to convict them of their sin, and God uses the word to enable victory over the sin. Brothers and sisters, the Bible that you have in your hands is not just another useless, overpriced self-help book. Not in any way, shape, or form. It is the sword of the Spirit. It is the truth spoken by God that the Holy Spirit uses to convict us of our sin and to empower us to win the war against sin. 
And in light of that, what do we need to do? We need to read the word. We need to memorize the word. We need to meditate on the word. We need to study the word. We need to pick up the word. We need to hold on to the word with all we've got. It is the sword of the spirit. There's no other weapon mentioned in the armor of God. What you have in your hand, the word you have before you, it's it and it's enough. Just like it proved enough for these people. Jesus, when he's in the wilderness, what sword does he utilize? The sword of the Spirit, the word of God to fight against the attack of Satan. And he has blessed us. He has so blessed us with that same sword. So the encouragement for us today is to continue to pick up the sword of the Spirit. Pick up the word of God. It does not return void in the battle against sin. It does not return void in the battle against Satan. The second application we can see from these three verses is evaluate your influences. Evaluate your influences. Listen, God didn't want the Ammonites or the Moabites near the Israelites, one, because they sinned, and two, because of their sinful influence. The Israelites, did you know, they were called a light unto the nations, just like the church is called a light unto the nation. Their job was to spread the truth of God. Their job was to make God famous, just like the church today. Their job was to influence the world. But clearly the Ammonites and the Moabites didn't want to be influenced by the Israelites. They only wanted to influence the Israelites. And God says, cut it out. Cut off that relationship. Don't allow them to grab a foothold and influence you and bring you down concerning your walk with God. And we need to heed this. We need to evaluate. We need to take all the influences in our life and evaluate them according to the word of God. What we're watching, who we're listening to, the social media influencers that we have in our life, are they a help? Are, they in any, are we in any way having a true and lasting effect on them for Christ? Or are they having an effect on us in terms of dragging us away from Christ? My kids and I, the boys and I, we used to love two YouTube influencers. We used to love Rhett and Link, and we used to love Mr. Beast. Raise your hand if you've heard of them. They're huge. I think Mr. Beast has 150 million followers. Rhett and Link, I think, are up to about 20 million. Huge influencers. Started wholesome, now not wholesome. And the kids and I realized something. We realized that we're having absolutely a zero effect on Rhett and Link, and we're having absolutely a zero effect on Mr. Beast for Christ. The influence is only going one way, and it's not leading us to Christ. So we don't watch them anymore. Why would I ever do that? My best friend growing up, he decided... To take a path down the wrong way and just run headstrong away from Christ. 
And I had a decision to make. I had to evaluate his influence. And come to find out, I was influencing him nowhere towards Christ. But he was influencing me away from Christ. And I didn't say I hate you. I didn't say I never want to be a part of your life. But I said the relationship has to change. Because this is not working. This is not what God wants I'm supposed to be as a follower of Christ an influence on you and not the world on me. This has to change. And he, in response, just said, well, then I'm, never, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. And that hurt and that was hard, but wow, am I so full of joy. Because one, it was honoring to God. It was honoring to God. Just imagine if I would have went with him, saying, I'm going to join the influence, the importance that's influencing me for the hope that one day it's going to revert back. What kind of testimony would have that have been? It wouldn't have been a testimony at all. Let's keep on going. We've seen this truth. We've seen these applications. Now we're going to look at the war for the temple. This one, if you think I'm angry today, this one's going to make me a lot more angry. All right, verse 4. Now before this, Elishabib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by the commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, Nehemiah speaking, for in the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked to leave the king and came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that Elishabib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Verse 8, and I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and frankincense. First, notice the timing again. Verses 1 and 3 are day 2 of Nehemiah's return. In verses 4 through 5, it's prior to Nehemiah's return. In verses 6 through 9, it's day 1 of Nehemiah's return. Second, notice the name Tobiah. You guys remember Tobiah? Turn back to Nehemiah chapter 2. Let's remember Tobiah. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 19. But when Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us. Chapter 2, they're starting to build the wall and Tobiah is amongst the group going against the people of God, mocking the people of God. You go to chapter 4, what do you see? You see the same group, Tobiah's in it, and what are they doing? At this point in time, they've moved beyond mocking to threatening their lives. 
to wanting to kill the people of Israel. We turn to chapter 6. What do we see? We see a conspiracy, and Tobiah is in the midst of it. Tobiah tries to get, along with Sambalot and others, he tries to get Nehemiah away from the people of God. For what purpose? To kill Nehemiah. And we turn to now Nehemiah chapter 13, and what do we see? We see this guy who has been warring against the people of God, who's attempted to kill and wanting to kill the people of God. We see him with a place in the temple of God. How sick and twisted is that? That's like instead of hanging a cross in your building, you hang a rainbow flag. That's exactly what it's like. It's absolutely disgusting and despicable and against everything God stands for and says. Third, notice who gave Tobiah the room in the temple? Elishabib, quite a name. Elishabib, who's Elishabib? Up to this point, he was a solid priest, he was solid. Turn back to Nehemiah chapter 3. Let's see how solid was he. Nehemiah chapter 3. They're building the wall. The people of Israel are being oppressed. What does Elishabib do? He is solid. Look at chapter 3 verse 1. Then Elishabib the high priest rose up with his brothers the priests and they built the sheep gate. What is that saying? That's saying Elishabib is willing to give up his time, his energy, and no way is he saying, I'm a priest and I'm higher than everyone else. In no way is he saying, hey, there's danger. People are mocking us. My reputation might be ruined. I'm not going to partake in the building of the wall. No, he stands strong. This is awesome. It's like, way to go, Elishabib. You are doing a great job. And then over the course of time, something goes wrong, right? We come to chapter 13, and he's the one who gives Tobiah a room in the temple of God. Something just went absolutely haywire. This is directly against God's word. Deuteronomy chapter 23, Tobiah is an Ammonite. There's not supposed to be anywhere near the temple of God. And yet he is the high priest who knows this probably better than anyone else, invites him and gives him a room in the temple of God. And what's interesting is look, at, look again at verse 4. Look at verse 4, the end of verse 4. It says Elishabib was related to Tobiah. How did that happen? Well, we're going to find out later in the chapter that Elishabib has a grandson who marries into Tobiah's family, and his grandson is in the line of the priesthood. So Elishabib is giving approval to his grandson living with or marrying, which according to Leviticus chapter 24, is absolutely wrong and disapproved by God. So he's breaking two commandments. It's just absolutely sad. It reminds me of so many things today. It reminds me, I used to love to listen to Anley Stanley. He was rock solid. Today, he's denied the veracity of the Old Testament. He's denying the veracity of the New Testament. And he's gone woke garbage all over the place. And it's absolutely sad and heartbreaking 
It's like, what are you doing? You were solid. And that's exactly what's happening here. And if that doesn't make you angry, I don't know what will. I should tick every believer off. Why? Because it's an affront to God. Because it's dishonoring God. And we see Nehemiah's response. What does he do? Day one, get out. He kicks them out. Absolutely incredible. Why is that incredible? Because of how scary that must have been. Tobiah is the one who's been mocking. Tobiah has connections with Sambalot and this other guy named Gershon who have an army. Tobiah has been threatening to kill. Tobiah is now related to the high priest. And Nehemiah comes back and he's got a scary thing in front of him. He's got a hard thing in front of him. He's got to take one of the relatives of the high priest, one of the most powerful men in the area, and kick him out. That is a hard thing. But praise God, he is capable of doing hard things, not because Nehemiah is so great, because his God is so great, because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And as a soldier of God, he's capable with the Holy Spirit of pulling this incredible feat off of entering into the temple and literally grabbing the guy's furniture and chucking it all out. That may sound harsh. It's absolutely not harsh. It's absolutely and totally appropriate, right? This is an affront towards God. So in righteous anger, like Jesus entered into the temple of God, we see in the New Testament, and overturns tables, here, Nehemiah overturns all this guy's furniture and gets rid of him. Three applications in light of this, and then we'll close. Application number one, remember what the enemy is. I'm going to say it this way. The enemy is so powerful. Just like Tobiah, a man of incredible influence. Satan is so powerful. Sin is so intensely powerful. But no matter how powerful they are, they are nothing compared to a soldier of Christ. Why? Because the soldier of Christ has God, the Holy Spirit, living in them. And they are capable, capable, as we see here, of defeating, of warring against and defeating this sin and satanic activity. Remember who the enemy is. It's a power. They are powerful, more powerful than you and I in of ourselves will ever be. But they will never be more powerful than the soldier who's filled with the Spirit of God. And you and I can fight like Nehemiah. You and I can. You know, we each have these sins, right? These specific sins we each fight that are so, like, they seem so specific to us and we struggle this with these pet sins, and it can seem like they're just unbearable and they're never going to go away. There's no way we're going to cut off that is a lie from Satan. You are, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, a soldier of Christ filled with the Spirit, and this is the type of thing you and I can do. We can cut, we can war against the sin and, victor, and have victory in Christ. Next application is get a Nehemiah in your life. 
get a Nehemiah. You'll notice Nehemiah isn't the one sinning here. It's his fellow leader, Elishabib. He's sinning. He's, he's gone off the deep rail. But praise God, Elishabib had a Nehemiah in his life. Someone who was willing Someone who is willing to say, that's incorrect. You're doing that wrong. I love you. I want the best for you. I want you to move in Christ like this. And that is what is holding you back. You know what this is right here, this group? This is Nehemiah's in our life. That, that's what the church is. A group of people who are called to judge each other, not for the purpose of putting each other down, but for the purpose of being a Nehemiah in each other's life. For the purpose of calling out sin so that we can grow together and build as the body of Christ. We do this as a whole. We do this in small groups. We do this in connect groups. And I hope you have a specific person in your life you can say, that's my Nehemiah. Kimberly's my Nehemiah and she does a good job. And I'm very serious about that. I jokingly, but I am very serious about that. I am so thankful. Just last night, maybe I shouldn't say that. Just last night, she calls me out on something I said. So appropriate and so good. What would I do without her? Man, you would have a pastor that's so screwed up. We need Nehemiahs in our life. Praise God, we have a bunch of Nehemiahs here at varying different levels. Praise God. Next one is look out for Tobiah. We'll read a quote from Vance Harver. He said this, Today the world has so infiltrated the church that we are more beset by traitors within than by foes without. Satan is not fighting, quote, fighting churches. He's joining them. How true is that? How true is that? And that's always been the case. Jesus said there would be wolves amongst the sheep. Jesus said there would be tares amongst the wheat. And we have to be very discerning. We have to be constantly evaluating our influences and the people around us according to the word of God because Tobiah just loves to sneak in everywhere. That's what he does throughout the entire book of Nehemiah. He's like the little flea that won't just go away, constantly pestering the people of God, constantly manipulating you see at the end, I think it's of chapter 10, he writes all these letters and he gets all these people on his side and it's just gross and disgusting. Tobias are everywhere all the time and we have to be aware of that. You know, for the longest time, I didn't, I just, let me just say it this way, I just didn't believe there were wolves among the sheep. It was just, I hadn't really experienced it a whole lot. I just didn't believe it. Terrors amongst the wheat, like, oh, this is church. Boy, was I wrong. We need to watch out. And you know, we have an amazing God who gives us the Holy Spirit. And with that Holy Spirit, he gives us, as we lean on him, discernment. As we lean on him, wisdom. And he gives us all the wisdom we need. All the discernment we need to be a good soldier for him. Let's pray.